Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. Quite excited about this one. Alex, who have we got on today? I knew I'd get you excited about boats eventually. I, I knew if I just bludgeoned you with enough naval history, you wouldn't be able to uh, stand up <laughs> anymore. Uh, I'm so excited. This is proper fangirling for me. Today we have David Davis with us, uh, sort of perhaps better known as J.D. Davis, if you've read his uh, books, because that's what he puts on them. Uh, Fiction-wise, he's given us some incredible naval characters, and we'll talk about those later on. But non-fiction-wise, he's written books about Wales's naval history, and the gallery conspiracy but he really comes into his own with Charles II's navy which is not talked about enough and that's why we're here today so David welcome thank you glad to be here how's uh, lockdown you've just finished a book haven't you yeah well that's the thing really I mean, in a sense lockdown isn't too different to what author's normal lifestyle is anyway so I don't really know I'm coming up for air and realizing what's going on after finishing the book off yeah, it's brilliant, isn't it? So we're basically dragging everyone down to our sad level um, during lockdown. Yeah, 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 that's it. <laughs> okay, Alina, let's get started. Let's talk about Charles II's Navy. So, I can't believe you've got me into naval again. Nobody comment on this point. Boom. <clears throat> <laughs> anyway, why is this period of naval history relatively uh, not known very well? Well, I think that's only true in this country, really. Um, and the, the reason for that is obviously, you know, the, the, the great period of naval history, as far as Brits are concerned, it would be Nelson. Uh, coming in a very close second to that would be Drake and the Armada. And the thing that's in common with those two periods, of course, is that we Brits win. Um, you know, there's Trafalgar, there's the Armada, and so forth. Now, the thing with Charles II's navy the enemy is the Dutch, and although a lot of the time you can regard a lot of the battles as draws, it's the Dutch who do better out of it. So if you asked a Dutchman that question, he or she would say that it's their great golden age. You know, it, it's their, the one that they do remember. Um, and a couple of years back when there were the huge commemorations in uh, Chatham for the anniversary of the Dutch attack on the Medway, which was one of the real highlights of the, uh, the Second Anglo-Dutch War. Um, you know, the Dutch came over in their droves and entire fleets of yachts and uh, were having a terrific party. So it, it, it's really one of those things that because it didn't particularly go well as far as we were concerned, it's really been sidelined. And as a result, I think a lot of very, very interesting stuff has got sort of passed over or completely ignored. 
quite rightly so if we didn't win um but no let's take this seriously uh you you do say though and i agree with you that despite the fact that we don't pay a lot of attention um to this period you can see um the restoration navy as the birth of the modern royal navy can't you very much so and in all sorts of ways i mean this is the time i think when you get the start of a full-time professional navy and then and there's all sorts of ways in in which um this happens um you know the system of admirals the system of flags the the way that they fight in the line of battle at nelson's later using or breaking later on um all kinds of things start to happen i mean the actual organization of the navy the way it's run the way it's administered um a lot of the categories of the paperwork even of the bureaucracy um you'll, you'll still find the same categories in the National Archives for the manuscripts these days. I mean, the, the, the legacy has carried on in that sense. So, I mean, I'd say it's, a, it's an absolutely hugely important period, but because it's been so ignored and written out of the record in this country, a lot of that has been forgotten effectively, and I think that's, that's a great shame. And, of course, that's why I've written the books I've written, both the fiction and the non-fiction. I mean, all of it is really this sort of great, personal cunning campaign <laughs> to, to increase the uh, awareness and the profile of the Navy in that period and doing this is exactly part of that again. I mean I didn't learn any of this at school so this is quite interesting for me stepping out of the box completely um, for Charles. I mean I knew there was a Charles II but that's about as far as my knowledge goes on the subject which is quite embarrassing but how, in, how important to the Navy was Charles II's Britain? It, it, well, I mean, the, the, the part about the Navy is it is hugely important in all sorts of ways. I mean, let me run through just a few examples. Mm -hmm. When the Navy's um, fully mobilised for a war or whatever, there's some 20,000 men serving in it. Now, if you plonked all of them ashore at one time, they would be the second, possibly the third biggest settlement biggest town biggest city in the country it, it's that many people and of course i mean the the supplying of that sort of number is a huge thing so you've got this enormous network of contractors literally across the country it's not just confined to coastal towns coastal communities you know they're they're getting iron they're getting all sorts of supplies from way way inland um, the royal dockyards are far and away the biggest industries of the period um, and actually i mean you know mentioning charles ii it's interesting um i wrote an entire book about this in fact i thought it was that interesting <laughs> but um people always have this impression with charles ii if they know anything about him they think oh right um you know really lazy guy, very into the ladies, all sorts of naughty things going on, lots of nice spaniels, and it's all a bit trivial and frothy and, and, and so forth. And okay, there is quite a bit of truth in, in that image of Charles, but actually when it comes to the Navy, it's his big interest, it, it, as well as his mistresses, arguably, it's his biggest passion. And he puts a tremendous amount of work into it. He puts hours and hours of effort into it. And he's involved in all sorts of things directly 
Um, which, so again, the, the image that people have, if they've got any image of Restoration England at all, it's often the sort of the old Merry Monarch idea and Charles as being very lazy and, and, and so forth. But when it comes to the Navy, that is absolutely not true. So both for the country and the king, I think the Navy is absolutely central to everything that's going on in the period. Um, obviously, the key thing is fighting the Dutch. Um, yeah, tell us a little bit about some of the engagements with the Dutch then. Okay, well, that, I mean, again, is um, something that's often been forgotten. For example, the biggest naval battle of the period is the Four Days Battle in 1666. Now, the name itself tells you that there's something special about this. You know, a naval battle that takes place over four days... I mean, most of the ones in the time of Nelson and so on are over in a few hours. This is the biggest naval battle in the age of sail. Um, the two fleets combined, the English and the Dutch, they've both got about 100 ships each. So you're talking about 200 ships spread over 20 miles of sea. I mean, these are absolutely colossal battles. Um, and, you know, you, you've got some very, very interesting things going on. You've got the use of the line of battle where the, uh, the fleets are sailing in these enormous long lines to maximise the gunfire from their broadsides. Um, and, you know, things like the Battle of Lowestoft in 1665, where James, Duke of York, the king's brother, who later becomes King James II, is almost literally a hair's breadth away from being decapitated by a cannonball. The three guys standing next to him, it's three of his best friends, their heads are all taken off by the same ball. Now, you know, if it, the ball had gone slightly different direction and it had been James who'd been killed, just how different could British history have been? And I mentioned just now, you know, you've got in 1667 the Dutch attack Chatham, they sail into the River Medway, they tow away the fleet flagship. Now, a case can be made for saying that that's one of the worst and certainly most humiliating defeats in the whole of British military history. Um, so there's, there's a huge amount going on, um, and the Dutch wars, I think, need to be much, much better known in this country. You wonder this problem in Holland, you know, you go into any of the, the museums, any of the art galleries, in Amsterdam and Rotterdam, and you'll see a huge amount in this about this period, but not particularly in Britain. Um, you do focus in your fiction series quite a lot, obviously, on the Dutch Wars because they are so significant to the period. But what else did the Navy do in this time? It does a huge amount, and I mean, again, you know, in terms of long-term importance, um, it does a great deal. Um, few examples: the. Mediterranean trade, the presence in the Mediterranean is really getting going in this period. And the Navy has a pretty sophisticated convoy system. You know, they're sending ships out on a regular basis to bring back the merchant shipping uh, from the country, the developing trade and so forth. They're involved in all sorts of expeditions in the colonies. Now, the most famous and the most significant is probably in 1664, right at the start of the Dutch War, when an expedition goes out to North America, um, it captures the settlement of New Amsterdam, and that's renamed New York. 
Um, another one which is uh, quite significant, a couple of years before that, the Navy, a big expedition goes out to India uh, to take possession of Mumbai. And in a way, I mean, that's one of the beginning points of the involvement in India with all the consequences that's had right down to the present day. Um, but, you know, and it's doing all sorts of mundane things as well. It's protecting fisheries. Um, it's doing coastal survey work. There are all sorts of things happening that, again, really don't get the publicity. And uh, that, I think, again, is something that should be much better known. What was the development of the Navy, above all, to Samuel Pepys? Ah, Samuel Pepys, yes. <laughs> um, now, there's a very, very interesting gentleman, just to say the least, because Samuel Pepys, okay, he starts off as clerk of the Act to the Navy Board, so effectively secretary to the number two body in the Naval Administration. Then he becomes secretary to the Admiralty, the number one body, and he works very, very closely with Charles II and with the the Duke of York. And, you know, he comes from very, very humble beginnings. He's a, he's a London tailor's son, so in a sense he's a nobody, and he's rubbing shoulders with um, the greatest people in the country. Now, obviously, people know about Pepys from his diary. Uh, for nine years, he keeps this fantastically detailed and frank diary of pretty much everything he's getting up to, and I do mean absolutely everything. Um, and, of course, I mean, it's one of the classics of English literature. I mean, it's not just a work of history. There are brilliant descriptions in there of the plague and the great fire of London. But... I think it's true to say that if Pepys had never written the diary or if it had never been discovered or decoded because he wrote it in shorthand, um, he'd still be an incredibly important person because he does have these roles in the Navy and he does play a huge, huge part in the reforms that happen in this period. I mentioned earlier, for example, about the organisation of the paperwork. Well, a lot of that is down to him. Um, he was very, very heavily involved in improving discipline um, and, you know, actually getting the uh, the captains to fill in their journals properly and uh, do their jobs properly uh, and so on. So, I mean, he is um, a very, very important guy. And like so many people at the time, he was a real Renaissance man. I mean, he was involved in so much. He was president of the Royal Society. Um, and, you know, he knew the likes of Wren and Newton. He would talk to them probably on a first name basis, for all we know. Um, and so he is mixing in all these great circles. You name the great well-known people of the Restoration period, and Pepys knows them and is quite possibly a friend of theirs. So, I mean, he has got a finger in pretty much every pie going. As far as the Navy's concerned, he is this incredibly seminal figure um, who, you know, is playing a huge, huge part in, it, in its development. He's a fantastic guy. I mean, the point about Pepys, though, I mean, he's way, way ahead of his time because, you know, people go on these days about spinning um, and so forth. I mean, Pepys is a master of spin. Uh, he will tell you in very, very clever ways what a wonderful job he's doing. 
and what a completely incorruptible guy he is. Um, and for centuries, of course, people have swallowed all of that. Well, it, it's not quite that straightforward. Um, Pepys was very often, you know, projecting a false image of himself. I love um, that in your uh, it, fiction series, you, you've got him as a bit of a prig, haven't you? Yeah, I mean, I, I think he was. I mean, this comes across from the diary. I mean, he's in, he can be very pompous, very self-important. I mean, he's a tremendous social climber. I mean, he must have been, you know, one of these people who was actually a bit annoying at parties, um, w w without a doubt. But on the other hand, he's one of these people who, despite all his flaws, he, he's got... He's got something to him, and I think the big saving grace with this, with Pepys, is that he does have a considerable level of self-awareness. Um, some of the times when, you know, he's doing something a bit dodgy, um, be it sexually or financially or whatever it might be, he's actually aware of that, and he tells us in the diary that he's aware of that, and that I think makes him. This incredibly rounded, flawed, likable human being. And if people out there don't know about Peeps and haven't read um, any of his diary, then please do it. I mean, it is fantastic. The entire diary, okay, the edited, censored version, admittedly, is online. You can get you can get access to it completely free online. Um, there are you know pocket editions and condensed editions and and so on. It's easy to get hold of, but it's well worth a look because it's absolutely brilliant. Absolutely. Um, how much credit for the Restoration Navy do we have to give to Cromwell and his lot? I'm hoping none. No, unfortunately, I've got to disappoint you there. Oh, Maybe. boo. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I, I've got to laugh at this comment. <laughs> <laughs> I just um, don't like him. No one can make me like him. It's not happening. Go on then. Why do we have to give Oliver Cromwell and his mob some credit for the development of the modern Royal Navy? Well, for, for, for one thing, a lot of the ships were actually built in that period. Now, one of the reasons why they're built is simple paranoia, you know, that this was an illegal regime. They're constantly afraid of being overthrown, so they build loads and loads of ships. Um, but um, in that period as well, you've got a lot of really, really uh, effective, successful naval officers who are coming along. And again, because the, the royalists, the cavaliers have effectively been kicked out, a lot of people are being promoted on merit from quite humble backgrounds. And Charles II keeps a lot of these people on because he realises, you know, these are very, very experienced people. They, they've got a good track record. They've beaten the Dutch before. Why on earth would you kick them out? Okay, there's a few hardcore political and religious people that you, you do have to get rid of, but he keeps a lot of them on. Quite a few of them become very, very successful and famous admirals in his period. Um, and so, you know, the, there are various things. I mean, again, I mentioned about the line of battle. Well, that tactics first come in during the first Dutch war in 1653. So... The, the Restoration Navy builds on what's happened beforehand, but then goes a lot further again and in a sense really lays the foundations for what 
what happens in the future. So yeah, I'm afraid, you know, you can't get rid of Cromwell. I mean, he's, he's there still. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I do. It does give you scope as a, a fiction writer, though, doesn't it, for some great turncoats and uh, some uh, skullduggery in telling stories about the Navy at that time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because, I mean, you know, you, and again, I mean, there's nothing new in fake news. You actually read the reports, the contemporary accounts from the 1660s and so forth. There are always these wild, crazy rumours going around that, you know, that there's plots. Um, thousands of Spaniards are about to land in Falmouth <coughs> or, um, or, or whatever. And, uh, yeah, people are believing all sorts of crazy things. And... You know, it, it's, um, you've had, the Royalists had lost Cromwell and the rest of them are in power. So you've got this, all the spying and activities going on. Then it flips. So the Royalists are in charge, but there's still plenty of people who want to go back to the way it was and they're plotting and conspiring. You have plenty of people whose loyalties are always being suspected so the, the absolutely, I mean, the potential when I'm writing fiction set in this period is absolutely huge because, all right, for one thing, you've got all of that happening, but then as well, you've got all the sexy shenanigans around Charles II's court. You've got a load of interesting people like Peeps that can become in as real characters. So you can't really go wrong. You know, the, there is so much material there that it's, it could be, I could write sort of 50 books probably if I had the time. <laughs> you know what i've got to go and pick myself up a copy because this actually sounds really interesting and i need to know more i like i like the kind of the spy stuff especially the modern stuff but i've never really gone back to to this time period at all so i think i need to go and uh, buy some new books to sit and read oh, but, yeah, there's, yeah there's some recent ones out there incidentally about sort of spies and intelligence in this period and of course one of the most interesting spies around is um afra ben the famous playwright i mean she was heavily involved in in spying throughout this period. I might have to get my dad to do that too, because he loves spies, especially the most modern, the modern stuff from the Second World War. So I might have to switch him on to a bit of um, yep. Cromwell, Alex, hint, hint. Uh, no. no, as long as they're spying against Cromwell. <laughs> Alex has a serious problem with this guy. Like, I don't know why, but... Actually, I do know why she just she just hates him. But I just refer to, to him as Satan's spawn. But yeah, <laughs> well, he referred to enough other people as that. So, exactly. Uh... Yeah, he was mean enough. 
God, you have such an issue with this guy. And I, I really, I feel, kind of feel sorry for him now. The fact that he made the top 10 of Greatest Britons and Nelson didn't, or he was ahead of Nelson or whatever, wasn't he? I don't know. Anyway, I hate him. Go on, carry on. I think, I think he was, yeah. Yeah. I think he was. That's your biggest issue, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I kind of like that they dug him up again after he died just to, just to crack on him some more but yeah, yeah. Well, maybe it's because well, tim sad, roth was so good in the film yeah 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 but but sadly they, they did the same in terms of digging up the body and just dumping it to the best naval officer of cromwell's time which was robert blake and, you know blake hadn't been particularly political he hadn't been particularly you know anti-royalist and, and, and so forth any more than any of the ordinary Parliamentarian forces had been. It certainly hadn't been a leader in the government, and and he had a state funeral, and so forth. And yet again, they just dug him up and dumped him, which I think is actually more of a a crime than what they did to Cromwell. I mean, you can see why Cromwell got that treatment. But I mean, and, and Blake hadn't signed Charles the death warrant. You know, he was he was one of the good guys, and yet he went exactly the same way. Mad times, weren't they? Yep. Yep. Definitely. I don't get it. I don't get it. It's, it's anyway. Moving on, because we want to talk about. Are you ready for all of this? This sexist oh, no. ship. You need to tell us about her. The sexiest ship. Oh yes. yes. Tell us about the shiniest, best ship of Charles II's navy. Best ship. Oh dear, that that is a difficult one because there's so many options. There's so many ships. Okay. <coughs> Go on, pick one, anyone. Sorry, sorry for the cough, I haven't got the virus. <laughs> um, um, okay. Slightly twisting the definition a bit. Um, there's a ship called the Anne. Now, she was what was called a third-rate man of war, so she was quite big. Um, you know, they've got first-rate of the biggest, second-rate, third-rate. Um, so she's quite a big ship. Charles II had 30 ships, including her, built in the late 1670s. Um, he had a huge amount of input into the design, and they are really, really beautiful ships. I mean, everybody who knows about ship design tells you these things are wonderful, and you, you see the paintings of them, models of them have survived. They are really, really lovely-looking ships. The thing that's good about the Anne is that you can still see it. It's the one and only ship of Charles II's navy that survives in any form. It was in a battle in 1690. It was driven onto a beach near Hastings, went on fire there, but the bottom part of the hull still survives. It's in the sand, and at very, very low tides, the top of that is exposed, and you can actually walk round it. You can be right up by the timbers of one of Charles II's ships. And that is an incredible feeling. You know, I've been lucky to be down there a couple of times when the tide's been right. Um, and it is a, an absolutely sensational feeling because, okay, you know, Nelson's Navy, you've still got HMS Victory and so forth, but the Navy of this period, there's pretty much nothing but that one ship. You can still go and, and literally touch it if you want to. Oh, uh, that is the first thing I'm doing when uh, this lockdown is lifted. Yeah. Touching ships. Yeah. 
I'm going to go down and sit, sit and wait for the tide. Um, you've mentioned the uh, line of battle. Is that the single biggest innovation of Charles II's navy? Yeah, I mean, I, there are all sorts of um, innovations in this period. I think, obviously, it's the ones in the battles that get the, um, the headlines, but arguably the more important ones were some organisational changes that don't seem particularly sexy but are incredibly important. For example, they bring in a, a qualifying examination for lieutenants, um, which means that you're going to have people who are then getting promoted to captains and admirals who have actually been through an exam. They've got a basic level of competence. And of course, that's one of the main criteria for any profession these days. So this isn't just important in naval history. This is important in the history of professions generally. Um, and as part of that as well, they bring in retirement and superannuation <coughs> for older officers, you know, previously people serve a few weeks, they serve a few months in command of a ship, and then they're not doing that anymore, and they just go off and poss possibly doing something else. In this case, you're now paying them a retainer, and so you've actually got the idea now of a permanent officer corps. Um, and eventually, of course, that's the system that Nelson comes through. Nelson has to take a qualify qualifying exam to be a lieutenant, and then he rises up the ranks in that way, in the way that's actually laid down the Navy of Charles II and Samuel Pepys. We all want to know, especially me, uh, and I'm assuming Alex too, life in Charles II's Navy. I mean, where did the sailors come from? How were they recruited? And what happened in an average spell of service? Okay, um... They're drawn very much, obviously, as you'd expect, from coastal communities, uh, from the uh, merchant trades, from the fishing trades, and so on. I mean, the old idea of the press gang, you know, of um, young men being dragged unwillingly from inland pubs with their sweethearts screaming as they're being dragged off. Well, that's largely untrue, because, I mean, the last thing you want, you know, big warships are the most sophisticated tech of this period, pretty much, with all the ropes and the blocks and tackles and the cannon and so on. You don't want ignorant farm labourers on those, if you can possibly avoid it. And so you want good, competent people. Many of them volunteer because, you know, you get reasonably decent pay, by, again, by agricultural labour standards, let's say. Yeah, you get <clears throat> a good-ish... Um, diet you know the the naval diet um is prescribed it's laid down there are regulations and and, and that's um uh, th that's again a lot better than people are often getting ashore one thing that raises eyebrows of course is that um, a gallon of beer a day is part of the ration yeah but you know eight pints of beer a day okay it's not particularly strong beer but even so you do have to wonder um so the sailors are, um, you know, drawn from uh, all across the country. I mean, they're, they're getting them from, obviously, the coastal counties of England. They're getting from them from Wales, Scotland, even from Ireland, and occasionally from further afield as well. So it, it's quite a cosmopolitan force in all sorts of ways, really, the, uh, the Restoration Navy. Well, the Sailing Navy generally, I mean, it's, it's not just confined to 
you know, people from Portsmouth or Plymouth. It is a national effort in all sorts of ways. I think there was a second part of that question I've, I've forgotten. Um, what was life like? So what happened in an average spell of service? Would they spend much of it um, in port or at sea? How long did they serve? Yeah, it, it, it varies enormously. I mean, some you might be only, only serving for a few weeks. Um, in some cases, they're saving, serving for a few months or even a few years. You know, if you're on a big foreign, uh, a foreign trip, you might only be in the North Sea, in which your case you're going out for a few days, you're coming back in again. Or you might be, I mentioned earlier on, you know, the, the voyages to India, you might be away for three or four years. It, it is literally that unpredictable. And, you know, there the used to be an advertising slogan in the Navy when I, when I was younger. Um, um, join the Navy and see the world. But I think that mindset was a part of it. You know, we have got records from people at the time that this is why they they go into the Navy. They know there's going to be a lot of boredom, there's going to be a lot of um, unpleasantness and so on. But if you've been stuck in the same little village or the same little town for the first 15, 20 years of your life, then the chance to go out and, you know, go off to all these distant, exotic places if you get the right ship, well, it's going to be something that some guys are going to absolutely jump at. Absolutely. Um, so speaking of Charles II's Navy, we have to talk to you about um, your Quinton Journals series. Um, people, if you haven't read any of this series, you need to get online and order Cap uh, Gentleman Captain, which is the first one. Um, it is up there with Flashman for some of the laughs in this book. Um, and there's rollicking adventure to be had. Tell everyone a little bit about the series and, and who the star of it is. Uh, well, first of all, thanks, Alex, the checks in the post. Um, <laughs> the, yeah, I mean, I've, I've been working, you know, as a supposedly serious historian in this period for over 20 years, really, but I'd always wanted to write fiction. Eventually the penny dropped after all that time that if I was going to write fiction about anything, I should write fiction about this period I've been working on. One of the, the oddities, in a sense, about um, this period, I mentioned that Charles II kept on a lot of Cromwell's captains, but a lot got kicked out. So he did have vacancies, and of course he wanted to get into the Navy people who were going to be guaranteed to be loyal to him. Well, there were hardly any cavalier sea captains who fitted that bill. So where is he going to get guaranteed royalist captains from by promoting, you know, sons of aristocratic and gentry families with good cavalier pedigrees? One slight flaw in that theory, of course, is that um, some of them haven't been to sea or they've been to sea very little, so they know virtually nothing. So I took it from the standpoint, well, okay, in the likes of uh, the Master and Commander series and Hornblower and so on. The hero's been at sea since he's a kid. By the time you meet him in the first book, he's already an expert at what he's doing. What if you had a hero who's one of these young men that Charles II suddenly appoints the command of a warship and knows nothing? He knows nothing about the sea. He knows nothing about a warship. And what's going to happen um, and so my hero is Matthew Quinton. He's the younger brother of an earl. Um, and so he's put into this position. 
and he's based quite closely on some real people. There were a few dozen people who were very much like him. And so I, I sort of took about three or four of their careers, merged them together. And so obviously, I mean, it, it's in terms of his development, it's very much a case of how he gradually learns what the Navy's all about, what command is all about, and how he gets o- over and past all these obstacles that he's got in his way. Yeah, I love it. Um, he really is. He's, Alina, he, the, the guy, the main character knows less about boats than you do in the first book. It's hilarious. Um, but he graduated. I mean, there are I'm eight- literally on Amazon. Yeah, it is brilliant. I, I read the first one in a day and then spent about three years harassing David to write the next ones faster because they weren't fast enough. Um, it's true, she did. <laughs> I did. I've already given him a suggested <laughs> you know plot line for the 1690s as well involving Peter the Great. I mean, he must literally see my name pop up in his emails or Twitter <laughs> alerts and think, oh, here she is again. But um, also as well, there's you've done a prequel trilogy as well about his grandfather who is, is so like Flashman it's brilliant he's just uh, basically a magnificent and heroic git in the style of sir francis drake um except he hates sir francis drake. he hates everyone pretty much he steals his thunder isn't he? he's great um he's brilliant uh, matthew's yeah. grandfather this is you went back and sort of wrote about the elizabethan period as well um, so there's so much fun to be had with these um but thank you so much for coming on to talk to us about Charles II's Navy and to um, not only to tell people to go and read your fiction series, but to tell us why it was such an important period. No problem. Thanks for having me here. And we're absolutely, um, I've already decided we're getting you back to talk about the Spanish Armada as well. Um, so we're really looking forward to that. Yeah, great. Join us tomorrow. We have an absolute blinder for you, as in Peaky Blinders, in skirts. We'll be talking to Emily Burgess, our youngest ever guest, about her research into female gang culture in London in the 10s and 20s. It's brilliant. She had us at Diamond Studded Knuckle Dusters, so don't miss that. It's absolutely great. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. All you have to do is go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. There now follows a public service announcement. I'm Horatia Hornblower, and I'm Archie Kennedy. The simplest gift you can give in these troubled times is to obey orders. Indeed. The regulations are very clear in the matter. It is the duty of all of us to remain at anchor until the little people in the talking box signal you otherwise. You don't want to end up getting flogged. Good day to you. Good day to you both. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. 